Amen. Would y'all give it up for that band for us? Thank you guys so much for leading us. It is such a privilege to get to be here tonight. Uh, My name is Robert Newberry, and I am the Young Adults Pastor on staff here at the Fort Worth campus, and it's such a privilege to get to be here with you guys tonight. Uh, It's especially fun and a little bit nostalgic moment for me, just getting back to be in the chapel where Renovate kind of started, and so it's this really fun full circle moment to get to be back in here. And I'm really excited to get to talk to you guys tonight. Uh, We're getting to talk tonight about the compassion of Christ and what that does for us. And as I was prepping for this sermon this week, um, it caused me to have a couple eight nights because I'm a really well-balanced individual. Um, I cannot say no to people, so I just wait till they all go to sleep, and then I do my work. It's a really great cycle. My wife is really thankful for it. Um, She's not. Um, But it's great. Uh, And I'm just like... I'm so sorry, babe. I did it again. And she's super gracious and kind and loving and better than I deserve. And so she says, all right, I'll just be in bed. And so I will go out and I will study. Sometimes I'll go up to the office and just hang out there. Uh, And one of the most, just the sweetest moments that I get uh, in that is if I know that my wife has already gone to bed, I walk in the door and we have just the most cuddly puppy. Like he is just the best. His name is Strider. He's a 50 pound lab pit mix. And when he is sleepy, he is the most cuddly dog in the world. And so I will walk in on those nights, and his droopy little head will be walking out, poke his head around the corner, and he'll just come up and just curl up in my lap and just sleep there. And I'll just get 20 minutes to exhale, and it'll be the best thing in the world. And so this week was no different um, because I'm stubborn and I don't like to learn from my mistakes, so I was pulling another late night. And so I was hanging out uh, and uh, just wrapping up my work and then heading back home. Come back in, uh, come through the door, Strider's not there. And I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, this is going to be interesting. Um, Because if you've never had a dog, the only time that they actually don't want to see you or they try and hide is when they've done something they know that they shouldn't. And so I'm like, all right, this should be interesting. So sure enough, I walk into the room where his crate is, and I usually leave a couple papers scattered on my desk because I'm not that type A person. Uh, my brain runs in 50 different directions, and so I just leave all 50 directions out there on my desk so I can see them. It's great. I've got a really big desk. Um, it helps. And so I just leave them all out there. Well, Strider decided that he was bored and wanted to make a toy out of them, and so I come home to a box of confetti. And so sure enough, my dog is hiding in his crate, drooped over and cowering, and he's just, want, he's just scared to see me because he knows he messed up. And I think it's the funniest thing in the world when he does that. I think it's hilarious. And I'm like, dude, that's never going to, like, I'm not going to disown you. I'm not going to just throw you out of my house in that moment because you did one thing wrong. And I was thinking about it, thinking about how hilarious it is that my dog does that. And I just got to see this really clear picture in a mirror of, man, that's what I do all the time. I remember this time in college where it was my senior year and my dad was going through some health stuff where he was really wrestling with would he be okay long-term or not. Um, Spoiler alert, he is, so it's great. Um, But we were really wondering in that moment, like, oh, man, is he going to be okay? But it also coincided with a really critical time uh, in college for me because my degree was coming to a culmination, and so I needed to do this final project that had certain steps that needed to be completed by certain deadlines. Well, when I found out that my dad got sick, I just let it all go, like, go sideways. Didn't do any of the work, fell way behind, never asked for help, never got it recovered. And it was just this impending doom in the back of my head. Didn't talk to my teacher, 
kind of like sat in the back of class and just skirted out of class as soon as I could so she couldn't call on me. When my parents asked, like, hey, how's school going? I'd be like, it's great. Uh, how are y'all? And just quickly would change the subject, try to do anything that I could to move on from the subject. But sure enough, that day came where I got a call from the dean, and he says, Robert, you have officially failed this class. That means you're under academic probation. You are not going to be able to graduate on time because you have to complete this class in order to move on to the next class and finish out your internship in your uh, final year. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And I was like, oh my gosh, how am I going to explain this to my parents? What am I going to do? How do I fix this? Right? Like, how do I cover it up? How do I deal with it? How do I put it away before they get there? And so I go to this meeting with the dean uh, where we're supposed to talk about this. I get my action plan. I'll be great. I'll be good to go. It'll be awesome. Right? I'll have a plan. I'll solve it. But when I walk through those doors, guess who is waiting there to see me? My parents. Who does that when I'm a 22-year-old at that point? Like, who calls your parents in college? They're not supposed to do that anymore. I thought that was the point of college is you are now an adult and your parents don't get invited to those phone calls. I was distraught. But in that moment, I was so exposed because I had been telling my parents from day one, school's going great. Don't worry about me. I got it. You just take care of dad. And I just built this facade and covered it up, trying to manage it on my own. And then when it got found out, when it got brought to me, yeah, I just felt exposed. And I wanted to do anything to get out of that moment. I wanted to leave. I wanted to hide. I wanted to try and excuse my way out of it or do anything else, anything to make it go away. Because I was just operating under this burden. I was operating under this feeling that if this is found out, if everyone really knew what was going on, Man, I'd be the biggest disappointment. I would have let them down. My mom was taking care of my dad, and I can't even handle my own business. So what am I doing here? And it was just this wrestle inside of me to want to be able to be honest, but not feeling the comfort or not feeling the ability to be able to be honest because the fear of the disappointment or the judgment or being let down. And so walking through that Walking through that conversation was one of the most incredibly painful things where my parents were asking me, why couldn't you tell us? Why couldn't you share that with us? Like, why couldn't you turn this over and trust us with it? We would have helped you. And I just had to sit there and say, I I didn't trust you. I couldn't believe that that was going to be better than me trying to hide it and walk on my own. And I realized that I had just been building up and carrying this weight that was never mine to carry alone. My mom was caring for my dad, and I was trying to do all my stuff on my own when I saw this picture of what it meant to lean on each other and be built up together, and I just couldn't trust it. And so I was like I hiding, trying to cover up, trying to figure out how to make good on my own mistakes when I just realized there wasn't any way that I could. I just had to trust that the relationship with the people who were there would love me and care for me and help me. And we all have that feeling, Right? feeling like we need to hide, feeling like we can't be honest or open for fear of judgment or rejection. Maybe for you, it's not a mistake. Maybe it's not uh, something you did in school. Maybe you're a straight-A student, but maybe it's a pattern in your life that you can't quite seem to kick. Or maybe it's a struggle that you've had for a really long time, or maybe it's just a weekend of bad decisions that you look back on and cringe and just feel like, I could never show this to anyone. I could never bring this out. And so the question is, is what do we do in that moment? How do we learn how to be able to turn that over? And how do we get to a place where 
we feel like that isn't the end of the road, that isn't the last stop for us. There is more on the other side of our biggest mistake. And that's what I'm really excited to get to walk with you guys tonight. Um, Because we're going to be in John 8, and it's this picture of someone who's caught in their worst moment and how Jesus meets her there and what that looks like. So if you have your Bibles, open with me to John 8. Technically 753, but it's all on the same page, so. So open with me there, and then I'll go ahead and read ahead. And if you don't have your Bible, the words will be on the screen. And it says this. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in their midst, or in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you, so what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring, bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Talk about being caught in one of your biggest moments. Just an incredibly, incredibly raw, real, exposing moment. Um, But to give you a little background on what is happening here and the picture that's unfolding in front of us, and to give you a little bit of context for the situation and where Jesus is in his ministry, Jesus had come into the temple teaching after after what's called the Feast of Booths. Booths, it's a really hard word to say. Um, The Feast of Booths. I'm going to stop saying that after this because I can't say it right. Um where they would basically go and build these little tents uh, basically in the field and they would celebrate their progression out of Egypt that God had carried them through and the provision that he had for them in that time. And so it's on the back end of this festival, this time with partying and everyone in jubilation about how God has taken care of us. Um, And then they come back after that and then Jesus immediately begins to start teaching. Um, But what had also been going on is Jesus had started to basically proclaim his ministry and tell the world, tell the Jews who he was and who, what he came to be, which was the Son of God, the Savior. Um, and so the Pharisees had started to basically raise up challenges or ways to try and test him. They had tried to debate him just on his claims, on his claims that he was the Son of God, on the claims that uh, basically the ways and the power with which he taught. They were trying anything to basically discredit him. And so in comes this moment where after they have already started debating Jesus with his words, with his teachings, with his ethics, then they use a situation to try and trap him. But what they do is they basically use this woman in her worst moment as a prop. The Pharisees and the teachers are basically using her as a test case, using this woman in her rawest, most real moment to basically say, Jesus, if you're 
If you're the teacher you say you are, what do you do with her? Because this is what the law says. And they're making, making her a point, making her the end of an exclamation point, making her the end of basically their line of questioning and challenging Jesus. And you can imagine being in the worst moment, whatever yours was, when I said what that might be for you, you can imagine having that be the moment where you were brought out in front of the religious elite and having that being discussed like you're not even there about what people should do with you, what people should, how they should treat you. Should they kill you? Because they're saying the law commands us to stone her. So Jesus, what do you say that we do? Should we do that? But I love what Jesus does here in this moment because he doesn't directly answer their question. He asks them a question themselves or basically implies a question when he says, let he who is without sin among you cast the first stone. In one statement, Jesus points out the hypocrisy of these men who are themselves sinners who have been caught, been guilty of their own sin. And in that, they are the ones trying to condemn a fellow sinner. And what Jesus is doing in that moment is basically leveling the playing field and saying, all fall short of the call to holiness, of the call to righteousness. And so only someone without sin can be the one to cast that first stone. And so what Jesus is doing here is Jesus is choosing compassion over condemnation. He is choosing compassion, not simply because he points this out to them, but because there's something unique about Jesus in this situation. According to the law, Jesus would be well within his right to cast that first stone. In fact, it would be expected of him as a Jew, sinless and blameless, to keep the law of Moses, which meant that this woman deserved death. But that's not what Jesus is doing. That's not who he has come to be. That's not what his ministry is marked by. His ministry is marked by compassion. And so he looks on this woman in this moment, and he chooses compassion. He chooses not to condemn her. Uh, in Scripture, it says, slowly, one by one, and when they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. It says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The Son of God, the holy and perfect, blameless one in this moment, is saying, I don't condemn you. I'm the only one who has the right. But in this moment, because Jesus has compassion on her, he offers her forgiveness. He offers her the chance to have a second chance, to not condemn her in this moment. Um, rather than execute this form of condemnation and stone her, he says, I am not going to condemn you. So he chooses, he offers forgiveness. But with that, he also calls her to something more. He calls her to life. He says, and from now on, go and sin no more. Because what he's doing is not just calling her to stop an action. He's not just calling her to stop the thing that she really likes doing. He's calling her to stop doing something that's robbing her of life. He's calling for her to give up the imperfect broken thing that she's been clinging to for her source of satisfaction and saying, hey, there's something better. Go and give up that life and come and follow me. 
So what he's doing in this moment is not just offering forgiveness as a blind form of acceptance and saying, hey, you do you, and that's fine. He's not saying that. He's saying, go and sin no more, which means come and follow me. Jesus is pleading for her to choose something greater, choose a life that is better, because it would be incredibly unloving for Jesus, the Son of God, who has made all of us, who has formed our most inward parts, who knows what satisfies us, who knows that we've been created for a relationship with him, to say, yeah, you can keep running, keep going in other directions that are never going to satisfy you. It would be like if, instead of from adultery, he saved her from drowning. He picked her up, plucked her out of the sea, gave her new life, and then let her walk right back off the boat again, back into drowning, no air, suffocation. But Jesus wants more for her, and he wants more for us. He sees all the ways where when I was trying to lie, when I was trying to hold on to my own narrative of what was going on in my life, when I was trying to cling and fit all the pieces together to make sure that I kept my parents happy and I kept my school happy and try and juggle all those things, because I was trying to do it for my own perception, for my own basically peace of mind. And he was saying, hey, that's broken. You know how I know? Because one call to your parents ruined it. One call to your parents took it. Or maybe it's not a call to your parents, but maybe it's that job performance, that job evaluation that you got. Or maybe it's a breakup. He knows that there are so many things in our life that are finite, that are never meant to fully satisfy us. And so he calls us to something better. His compassion calls us to draw us to him. He gives us the opportunity. He wants us to be able to feel comfortable at any moment, to be able to turn back to him because he knows he's the only source of life. And so he says, hey, come and follow me. Don't go and sin no more. Don't go back to the place where you feel like you have to hide and run and you can't feel like you're known. Don't do that. It robs you of life. Come and follow me. And so he wants us to be able to turn to him, which leads me to my second point, that the compassion of Christ makes it easier for us to turn to him. Back when I was growing up, my brother and I had a system for our house. Our parents had an understanding. My brother and I were very uh, rambunctious as kids. He was two years older, um, but we kind of grew at the same time, so there was, there was always this level of contention in our house of like who was better, who was more athletic, who was smarter. Everything was a competition. And so my parents developed this rule in our house um, where basically whenever we started roughhousing, whenever we got <clears throat> rambunctious, they said, hey, we don't want to know about it. We don't want to know if you punched who. We don't want to know just, and if you break something, we only want to know if you can't fix it. So we're like, okay, we kind of got the rules. We understand the rules of engagement. We know what we're going to do. That means just stay out of the living room with the china and then just stay in the den. And that's where we'll be. And it'll be great. And we'll roughhouse and we'll wrestle and we'll do all the things and it'll be great. <clears throat> However, um, I don't know if you know this, but like 13 to 15-year-old boys aren't the wisest and don't like regulate their emotions super well. And so sure enough, oftentimes our fights would spill into the living room or spill into a bedroom or the TV room. Uh, and there happened to be one time where we broke our kitchen table. Um, okay, yeah, not great. Like not shattered, we just snapped a leg because we rolled into it and so it wasn't great. However, it wasn't one of those where it like broke at the joint and you could just screw it back in. It like snapped clean in two at the bottom. Um, and so we're like, all right, well, we're dead. Um, so this is great. And so went into that same pattern of hiding. 
trying to run, trying to figure out what we could do. We couldn't figure it out. And I kind of blame my brother because he turned out to be an engineer. So like if anyone should have been able to do it, it should have been him. <laughs> so that's his fault. Um, but we ended up just not being able to fix it. And uh, in our household, my mom worked at my high school, which was one of my most favorite experiences. Um, you can ask me about it later. Um, and so she ended up getting home first, and we just laid on this option. We're like, Mom, we're so sorry. Like, I don't even know what happened. Like, we just, we slipped, and it just, like, I guess both of us, like, kind of just fell into it at the same time. We weren't even wrestling. Like, I promise I didn't tackle him into it. It's fine. I don't know what happened. And in that moment, my mom responded in a way that set a pattern for the rest of our time under my parents' house. And she said, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to go and buy this new table because I wanted one anyways, and we're just going to say that we threw this one out. And don't worry, guys, I'll take care of this one. I'll take care of your dad, and it'll be okay. Like, my dad was fine. He just would have been like, you idiots, and then got mad at us. But she had such a kind and gentle response that the pattern was set. As soon as we messed up, we know who we were going to. We were going to mom. Because we knew that she would help us. We knew that in that moment, she would be the one that we would turn to because of how gently, how compassionately she responded. And when we have mistakes that we carry on now in life, don't we all seek and search for someone who's going to be that compassionate, warm, and welcome face? When you confess, when you tell someone that you've made a mistake, don't you tell the person that you think is going to be most understanding and most compassionate? And one of the beauties of Scripture is that we have a God who is and will always be the most compassionate voice in your life, the most compassionate listener. Because the truth of this story is that Jesus knew every single ounce of her sin, knew every place she had been. There's another story in Scripture where a woman is actively being adulterous with a fifth man who's not her husband. And it starts out by Jesus saying, like, the man you're with is not your husband. She says, obviously, you're a prophet. And he says, indeed, you've been with five men who are not your husband. And so Jesus knows every single bit of her history. And yet what he does in that moment is choose to offer compassion. There is no hiding. There is no place there is no secret that I have or we have that we're able to hide from the God of the universe. And so that fear in the back of our head of like, oh, if someone only knew, what would they do? How would they respond? What would that look like? Doesn't exist because he knows all of it. He knows every single place you've been. And instead of taking a posture of disappointment, judgment, frustration, our Savior Jesus takes a posture of compassion because he wants you to know that he's the first place to turn. He wants you to know that there is no other compassionate voice. There is no one who wants to hear you out because there is no one who gave their life for you. There is no one who laid down their life. And so when we think of this wrestle of, I am stuck in this pattern or I'm stuck in this really embarrassing place, I don't know what to do, what should also pop into our minds is, I want to go to the most compassionate voice, and I know who that is. That is Jesus who laid down his life for me, and if you're a Christian and you're in this room, that is the story of your life, is that you have a God who looked on you and said, I want that person in my family so much 
that I will send my son to live and walk alongside them and know them and bleed with them and suffer with them so that he can give them new life. That is the offer of grace that is on the table for anyone who would choose to follow Jesus. And if you're in this room and you've never heard that before, or if you're in this room and you have seen people who don't model that but model a posture that's way more like the Pharisees who want to condemn you for the mistakes that you make, please let me be the first to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We as the church get it wrong. But the greatest news of the gospel is that it's not the church that saves. It's Jesus. It is Jesus who has the compassionate posture, who wants to draw you in, who wants to be the first place you turn because he wants to be the answer. He wants to be the one who builds you up so that he can send you out and so that he can grow you and show you what it looks like to actually follow him and find true life. Scripture says that his burden is easy and his yoke is light. It says that in his presence there is fullness of joy. And so he says, he pleads, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, for I will give you rest. That is the heart, that is the posture of our God. He knows what we're going through, but he also knows that he's the most compassionate voice. He knows that he's going to be the one to draw you in because he's already forgiven you through the work on your cross. Don't get me wrong, I understand the desire to hide. I still have to wrestle with it. We all have those feelings of, can we actually trust that it's true? I doubted that relationship with my parents that they would come through with me, but the greatest news is that Jesus is so much better than any other earthly version you have, whether that's a counselor, a best friend, a parent, whatever it is for you. There is no ear as compassionate as Christ's. And lastly, the third point that I have is that the compassion of Christ should make us want to follow him. The compassion of Christ should make us want to follow him. Because if we have walked around with these burdens, if we have walked around with this idea that we need to hide, if we need to cover up our greatest mistakes because the only thing that the world offers is condemnation or judgment or a path of working towards atonement, then we taste the freedom of forgiveness and grace. It should change our lives. Knowing that there's a God of the universe who knows everything that we could ever do and silences all the voices in our heads, all the accusations in our heads of you'll never be loved if they know that. Because he says, I know it, and I love you. I gave my life for you. That is who our God is. And so once we taste that, once we feel that freedom and realize that all the pressures that we've been carrying aren't things that we actually have to carry anymore because we have faith in someone who is bit bigger, better than all of the fears, concerns, and doubts that we have, it should change us to want to follow him. When we love the grace that he provides, then it turns us into people who say like, okay, what does it look like to follow you? What does it look like to walk with you? What does it look like to be a believer who walks in this room. And it looks like us turning over our lives, turning away from the things that have robbed us, turning away from the things that make us want to hide because we realize there's a better picture of satisfaction. There's a better picture of peace. And all those other avenues that we have, whether it's our own performance, any sort of coping mechanism, whether it's sin, whether it's mistakes and lying to cover up all the ways in our lives, they all fall short because they all come with the pressure of I have to keep performing or I can't be discovered, I can't be found out. 
But the grace of Jesus comes with, I love you. I want better for you. That's what our God is calling us to. So whether you are a Christian in this room or you've never had a relationship with Jesus, I hope you see that the posture of Jesus is one, not of a disapproving God, not of a God who's waiting to be frustrated at you or waiting to be upset at you, but as a God who can't wait to love you, can't wait to hear you out, have compassion on you, and then call you to better, because that better is what he created you for. So that's my hope, that's my prayer. Let me pray for you guys. Father, you know all the ways where we want to run, we want to hide because we feel like we're either inadequate or we've made too many mistakes or too far gone. But I thank you so much for the picture that we get of our Jesus who is so compassionate that even in the midst of knowing our darkest fears, our darkest parts of our heart, the worst moments that we've ever lived, he doesn't choose condemnation. He doesn't choose to come in judgment, to condemn and cast a final straw. But he chooses to be gracious and compassionate and look on us in mercy because he died for that right. So God, I pray for whatever ways that we're trying to hide in this room. I pray for whatever burdens that we have that we feel like we can't turn over because what would other people think? God, I pray that we would lay them at your, at your feet because we see that you are a compassionate Savior who wants to just care for his children. So God, I pray for all the people in this room that as we process God, that we would know that truth, that God, the lies, the thoughts in our head of, you can't say that, you can't talk about that, you can't tell about that time. God, I pray that they would all melt away because your grace is stronger. Your forgiveness is total. And there's no sin that can cover your grace. I pray that we would know that. I pray that we would get to experience that tonight. We love you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and sing?